Hello there. My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Overuse of words such as star, hero and legend with regard to people having done little if anything much out of the ordinary is now a major problem as it devalues the impact these words can have when a genuine candidate comes along. Having become routinely battle-hardened by them, these days they rarely, if ever, draw much of a response. So when I now ascribe deserved legendary status to Irish shore angler Jack Shine, it too could also be taken in the same vein, though I most sincerely hope not. For what other word is there to describe a man who dreamed of, then planned and repeatedly carried out what arguably is the greatest Irish shore angling feat ever, which in the 50 or so years that have since elapsed has never once been repeated? I refer of course to the deliberate targeting and landing of poor beagle sharks from the shore. A major feat by any standards, but one which in this particular case is made all the more creditable due to the tackle available at the time, with the first successful encounter coming back in the summer of 1962. Much has been written over the years about Jack Shine, a great deal of which has painstakingly been gathered together as a comprehensive piece of angling history by Irish angler Mick White. Jack Shine unfortunately died back in 1997, But before he passed away, Mick was fortunate enough to spend time in his company, carefully recording the history and achievements of the man. Unfortunately, with podcasts still a concept of the future back then, no voice recordings were actually made. Still, Mick was meticulous in the extreme in this self-allotted task. So let me now hand you over to the man himself for the rest of the story in full. How are you, Phil? It's nice to talk to you. And it's really nice to get the opportunity to re-explore the story of this amazing angler. His was a truly unique chapter in the story of our angling history. The story of Jack pops up from time to time in the angling press. It's just one of those amazing angling stories that begs to be retold time and time again. The first time I ever spoke to Jack, he said to me, Ah, I caught a few poor bagels off the shore down here years ago. And sure they're still talking about it. And here we are today... Still talking about it. Jack felt that many of the articles written about him focused a lot on the sensational aspect of shark fishing from the shore, but they failed to go into the little details about tackle and techniques that would have been a benefit to any angler considering taking up this form of fishing. So in a way, maybe through this podcast we can put the record straight and who knows, there might be somebody out there willing to have a go themselves. There's certainly great scope from some of the deep rock fishing marks around our coast. Well, I suppose the story of Jack's fishing really began in the early 1950s. It was around this time that he moved with his wife Rita from his native county court to a place called Moy, just a short distance west of the resort of the Hinch in County Clare, and it was here that he took up his position as creamery manager in the area. And I'd imagine that that was a fairly responsible job to be in, really, handling what's essentially a very perishable product. He'd have been dealing with a lot of people from day to day, coming and going, farmers and suppliers. But Jack was really good with people. That was one of his great personal qualities. He loved having the crack and chatting to people and getting to know them. He'd have to have overseen the constant cleaning and maintenance of equipment, keeping tight schedules. He'd basically have to have been the sort of man who could juggle a lot of things at any one time. And I suppose therein lies a clue to the kind of angler he would later become. Jack and his wife moved to a really lovely part of County Clare, to the hills of Moy. It's a really lovely, quiet, rural area where they had good friends and neighbours. And I have to say that the view you get as you drive back downhill from Moy towards the main Milltown Le Hinch Road really is something else. 
On a fine day you can see the full expanse of Lascanor Bay, the village of Lascanor and the harbour on the other side, and beyond that again then you can see O'Brien's Tower up on the cliffs of Moher, and as you look out to sea away off in the distance you can see the Aran Islands. Really, really is a fine sight. This area is absolutely steeped in musical tradition. Just down the road in Milltown Malga each year from the first Saturday in July begins a week-long music festival, and that's held in the memory of the famous piper Willie Clancy. People gather in the town from all over the world to play, to learn music, to dance, or, or simply listen to traditional music. Yeah, it's a grand occasion, and one that Jack and Rita would have been very much a part of. Jack was a respected clarinet and fiddle player, and Rita was a fine accordion player. His family life was steeped really in music, and his youngest son Noel and Noel's wife Mary are well-known composers and recording artists who tour Ireland extensively, and they also teach music. And even in the next generation among Jack's grandchildren, there's accomplished musicians there too. So yeah, there's a really fine musical legacy there. It's interesting really that Jack was completely new to England when he arrived in County Clare. But I suppose being the sort of sociable fellow that he was, he enthusiastically joined the locals on the annual pilgrimage to the foot of Mount Callan, near Milltown Malbe. You see, there was a bamboo grove there where poles of up to 15 foot long could be cut, and this rod was known locally as a wattle, and at the top of this rod then was attached a length of line maybe 15 to 20 foot long. I suppose the length of the line was dictated really by the location, by the height of the fishing platform or the depth of the tide. And on the business end of this end was tied maybe a red and silver mackerel spinner on a length of gut, or a few homemade mackerel feather lures. These were normally made from feathers plucked from white leghorn chickens, and I'm sure the chickens must have absolutely dreaded the arrival of the mackerel season. Or these were made from goat's hair, with the goat's white smiggle being prized in particular for its magical fish-catching properties. These wattles were used to good effect on the rocky ledges of Blackhead, Ballyrine, and of course the Green Island, that was later to become synonymous with the name Jack Shine. The lures could be swung out a few feet and jigged for mackerel and pollock, and I'm sure this was as much a social event as a way of catching a few fish for the pot. I've seen photographs taken at the time with every bit of available fishing space occupied by an angler. And it's amazing really that the, the theme of the pole and the line has been repeated the world over, I suppose it's the earliest form of angling, the universal origins of angling really, and I suppose it's been done for thousands of years. And I know it all sounds a bit like the Huckleberry Finn equivalent of rock fishing, <laughs> but I'm sure there was a bit of skill to it, and, and definitely a lot of fun. And this was really the beginning of Jack's adventures in angling. Through the 50s, Jack would have seen a lot of exciting developments taking place in the angling scene. The Irish Federation of Sea Anglers was formed, and in turn its chairman and secretary Paddy Saul and Christy O'Toole were travelling the entire country, organising fishing clubs for affiliation to this central body. These men did absolutely Trojan work. This was to have a profound effect on the development of Irish sea angling. The potential of angling tourism became recognised, and funding from both the state and board faulty, the tourist board became available for the development of proper boat angling centres, and I think Westport was one of the first of these. Jack himself and his sons were members of the Listown Verna and Fenora Sea Angling Club, and their names are engraved on some of the club's perpetual trophies there. The secretary at the time was John Cullinan, a good friend of Jack's, and a few years ago I got in touch with John with the help of the then secretary James Lennon, and James had a famous cousin too who I'll be given a mention to later on. John lived down in Ennis time and only a short distance from Moy, so I arranged with Rita that we'd meet up in her house, and we did. 
and we had lunch there and finished off with Rita's homemade apples, heart and tea. Rita's the best in the world, really. We spent a grand evening there going through photographs, putting dates and names on them, and Jan recalled many a good fishing trip with Jack, and the antics of the sharks whipping the feathers off the end of fishing lines. Yeah, we had a grand evening there. At the time I was trying to gather up all the material that I could find relating to Jack's fishing, you know, magazine articles, photos, whatever, and create a kind of a slideshow that I could put onto a DVD. And this in turn then, I could distribute between Jack's family and friends. And I actually succeeded in doing this. But John had this great fishing story, about a particular boat trip off of Ballyrine on the northwest coast of Clare. They were fishing close to the rocks catching Pollock, and one of the anglers had his young son with him and the young lad was fishing happily away there, catching a few fish. Well, the day was going nicely anyway, and the young lad got a good double or maybe triple hit of pollock on his feathers. And I'm sure, as you know yourself from experience, that a, a string of pollock can put on a fairly good pull. So he had a good tight hold on his hand line, and he was bringing up his catch from the bottom. And just as his catch neared the surface, a huge poor beagle appeared out of nowhere, and bore down, taking pollock, feathers, line, the whole lot with him. And only for somebody grabbed this young lad, he was nearly gone over the gunnel too. Luckily the line wasn't wrapped around his hand. So there's a cautionary tale for any would-be hand liner. Never wrap the line around your fingers. Ever. Anyway, where was I, Phil? Oh yeah, back in the mid-1950s. <laughs> well, with the appointment of Des Brennan as sea angling advisor to the Inland Fisheries Trust, began a whole new chapter in Irish sea angling. Des worked alongside with Christie and Paddy, and it was decided that a good way to promote Irish angling would be to invite the cream of British anglers over to participate in organised competitions. So through Leslie Hasselow of the National Federation of Sea Anglers in Britain, they were organised. And these team competitions proved to be a great success, as were the subsequent articles written by Des in the angling press. Visiting anglers began to arrive. Des continued with his survey work, and he made valuable contacts in the British angling press. And soon articles written by names like Hugh Stoker, Clive Gammon, Mike Pritchard and Brian Harris began to capture the imagination of anglers on both sides of the Irish Sea. Their experience and technical know-how were really invaluable to the evolving angler. Mass production of rods and reels and the arrival of the new wonder material fiberglass, along with purpose-built cane and glass beach casters and casting multipliers, opened up a whole new world of Irish beach fishing for the first time, and the age of the old bamboo wattle passed forever. Well Jack absolutely reveled in all this new technology and he got himself a motorbike and began to explore the clear coast and its angling potential, both rock and beach. He kept himself informed on tackle and techniques through the popular publications at the time like Angling and Creel magazine. But he was never one to follow trends and he was always constantly developing his own style of fishing, experimenting with rigs and casting styles, hook patterns and line diameter. Always trying to find that fine balance between strength and casting ability. Fine tuning his fishing gear just like a musical instrument. In time Jack's motorbike eventually gave way to a car, a Morris Minor, and he was joined now by two enthusiastic young anglers, his two sons, Gerard and Noel. Unlike their dad, they had an early introduction to the world of angling, and with good equipment and great guidance at their disposal, they quickly became accomplished anglers themselves. The entire clear coast from the Shannon Estuary to the South Galway shore marks became their hunting grounds, and Rita often described how they would barely have their dinner eaten when they'd be hopping into the car with the rods to catch some tide. Real men on a mission. They were all round anglers really, fishing the rocks for pollock and wrasse, the beaches for turbot place, and in particular bass. 
Bass were once plentiful on the clear coast. They also cut good taupe from both beach and rock marks. And I have no doubt that the experience gained from this hard-fighting species went a long way towards preparing Jack for what was to come. It wasn't unusual back in those days for an angler to have his lure taken by an unseen mystery fish, to have the rod and reel almost ripped out of his hands, and stand gazing helplessly while every yard of line was ripped off the spool. It must have been a really shocking occurrence for a visiting angler, but it was no mystery to the locals who this assailant was. The goat's white smiggle carefully trimmed, feathers lovingly plucked from white leghorn chickens and carefully tied onto hooks. All were fair game to this unseen assailant, and I'm sure many an angler must have absolutely cursed these sharks for what they were doing and promised to take his revenge on them in the form of actually catching one and putting them on the rocks. And this too would have been Jack's introduction to the world of the poor beagle shark. But the difference between Jack and the other anglers was, when he said he was going to catch one, he really meant it. <laughs> the Green Island on the southwesternmost tip of the Scanner Bay was where it all began for Jack. He did most of his early fishing here. For besides being an excellent fishing market, it was also fairly close to where he lived. So off the beaten track and Jack would have made his way down to the green fields flanked by little stone boundary walls, a really postcard vision of the Irish landscape. And all this comes to an abrupt halt at uh, a short stone wall that in the summertime is covered by the most beautiful wild flowers. Just over this little wall is where the land has surrendered to thousands of years of oceanic erosion to reveal a really complex landscape of rock comprised mostly of shale, splintered and worn by the Atlantic storms into the most unusual forms of shape and texture. Looking east end towards the hinge you can see various rock platforms, all popular fishing marks, but the roughly northward pointing headland of the Green Island provides access to deeper water. It's an awe-inspiring place to be, particularly when the tide is low. You get that incredible smell of sea plants that you can only get from a large expanse of exposed rock, and there's the most amazing percussion of waves echoing in the sea caves just behind you. But I think the most impressive feature of all is the massive stratified rock that stands on the end of this headland. It gains island status only at the top three hours of the tide, and gets its name from the partial covering of grass and tiny plants that somehow manage to survive the rigours of the Atlantic. This place really gets a battering in the winter time. Jack was back on the Green Island rocks in May 1962 fishing for early mackerel, and he noticed a marked increase in the sighting of sharks, with dorsal fins seen regularly no more than 50 to 60 yards offshore. And often these sharks boldly followed feathers right up to the rocks, often successfully snatching them if the angler couldn't whip them out of the water quick enough. There seemed to be a psychological barrier between the shore angler and sharks. They certainly must have presented a very attractive angling proposition, but the two seldom met except for the odd encounter that usually resulted in the shark getting a mouthful of feathers and steel, and the angler getting, well, a broken line. But this barrier was beginning to drop as the sporting angler and Jack began to think. After all, these sharks were caught regularly from boats, not far from where he was fishing on the rocks. So the wheels were beginning to turn. The following June, Jack was spinning as usual from the Green Island, when suddenly 50 yards out his goat's hair mackerel flies were taken with what he described as a tremendous bang. Following a powerful 40-yard run, he lost contact with the fish and reeled in what remained of his five-fly trace. One fly was all that remained. In an instant the barrier between angler and shark came down. Jack was about to cross the line. His excitement began to grow as he tied on the only steel trace he had available at that moment, a two-foot-long tope trace with a six-saw hoop. And this must have made his thirteen-pound line look very inadequate indeed. Jack knew this was going to be a long shot. He attached a small float just above the trace, 
And as the sharks seemed content to take small oars, he baited his hook with a small slice of mackerel, casting it about fifty yards out. Seconds after it settled, it was taken porpoise style, the shark's dorsal and tail fin showing on the surface. Jack made an estimate of about a hundred and twenty pounds as his adrenaline kicked in. He was amazed at the incredible power behind its every move. On thirteen pound line, the shark probably hadn't even woken up yet and was still hunting. For ten minutes, Jack pushed the limits of his spinning tackle. Until close to the rock that Jack was standing on, the shark bore down, its tail banging on the line, its rough height chafing, until the line parted, and Jack was left there standing, still trying to take it all in. That same evening, an angler fishing about a quarter of a mile away had lost mackerel flies to a shark, and a mounting a German spat had that taken too, so the shark certainly seemed to have arrived in numbers. Jack remained optimistic despite the loss. He had at least made a start, and he knew that with a few modifications to his tackle, he had a chance of taking at least a modest-sized shark. And so his expedition began. Jack wasted no time in making his preparations, and as more anglers continued to lose traces to sharks, Jack put a very credible shore shark fishing kit together from what tackle he had available to him. He replaced the original two-foot trace which cost him his first shark with a seven-foot trace of 90-pound break-and-strain wire, which would act as a rubbing leader against the shark's rough hide. The mackerel spinning rod was replaced by an 8-foot medium-to-heavy solid glass fibre rod and a Luxor fixed spool reel carrying 400 yards of 19-pound break-and-strain line. This was basically top fishing gear, but even with the 7-foot trace and such a short rod he could still make casts of 60 yards, putting his bait well within the feeding area. Only one thing remained, how to actually land the shark once it was played out. Jack was a real innovator, I mean this man was thinking way outside the box, he came up with a brilliant idea. He got the local blacksmith to forge two steel gaff heads, and these in turn were jubilee clipped onto the end of graded sewer rods. Extra rods could then be screwed onto this head depending on how long the handle needed to be for the venue he was fishing, and also because the rods were flexible, they could absorb the shocks of a trashing shark. Simple yet brilliant. So Jack was all set to go. With so much shark activity going on, one would have thought that Jack would have enjoyed almost instant success, but this certainly wasn't the case. Fishing as he did originally with the suspended tail half of a mackerel, he set it out for days, and the days became weeks, and in turn months. Sometimes a shark would come heart-stoppingly close to his bait, only to ignore it at the last minute. He made contact twice, but premature striking cost him both fish. Well, all this led to a great deal of jostling and mickey-taking by other anglers, enjoying great catches of other species. All just good-natured banter, really, from anglers who knew his form well, and I'm sure Jack enjoyed it just as much as they did. At least it broke the monotony, and I'm sure deep down they knew it was only a matter of time before Jack would have his day. On the 27th of June 1962, after almost two months, Jack finally did have his day. He began to inject a little movement into his baits, and on seeing a shark close by would begin to retrieve it slowly. This small change in tactics made a huge difference to the appeal of his bait. The take finally came, and Jack steadied himself, remembering how he'd lost the previous two shark. This shark held the bait in its teeth for a while, chewing and shredding it before finally taking it back into the soft tissue of its mouth, and as it turned seawards, Jack struck in a sidewards motion in the hope of hooking the shark in the scissors of its jaw, and so the battle began. On 19 pound break and strain line, this shark fought with tremendous power, Jack gaining experience with every passing second, gauging the speed, watching the direction of each run, a mixture of elation and, and fear, the rocks, the reefs, the rough hide. The fish finally began to tire, but was still a world away from where Jack wanted it. Finally, after 30 minutes of extreme angling, 
A £77 per vehicle share created a new first in European shore angling. A new record was created. On the 5th of August, using the same outfit and method, he had two in one day. The first, a shark of £75, was followed about as it neared exhaustion by a larger shark. Just after landing the £75-pounder, he recast, and his bait was immediately taken by a shark that tipped the scales at £91, probably the same fish that was following the other. And all this success took place in a flurry of excitement, with anglers dropping their rods and running, calling to each other from rock to rock, all eager to witness this amazing spectacle. The jostlers and the mickey-takers were there at Jack's side, willing to help their friend in any way they could with the landings, and an obscure fishing mark beside the green island became known as Shark Rock. Well, the following winter must have seemed like an eternity to Jack, who by now was well and truly bitten by the shark-fishing bug, and he must have wondered if the sharks would return in the same numbers as before, remembering the previous years before 1962, when as few as five or six trace-smashing attacks were reported in a season along the entire clear coast. 1962 saw as many traces broken in only a few hours fishing at the Green Island, and since he came so close the previous season, it became his ambition to land a 100-pounder. Late May 1963 saw Jack back at the Green Island fishing for early mackerel when, yeah, you guessed it, his feather trace was torn off by a hunting shark. He wasted no time in baiting up his trace with one of his freshly caught mackerel. This was quickly taken and an unstoppable run began that saw almost a quarter of a mile of Jack's 19-pound break-and-strain line taken out into Lascander Bay. He knew this fish was a few pounds heavier than his previous tree. He wished he had used a stronger line as he fought to keep the last few coils on his Luxor fixed spool reel. Up and down the shore it swam and twice it passed a nearby promontory. Jack fully expected his line at any moment to part on the jagged rocks that were covered in barnacles, but at the last moment it turned and headed seawards boring down deep. Jack's skills were really put to the test, but eventually the shark began to tire, and he began to recover line. After an exhausting 45-minute battle that seemed like an eternity, the shark came into sight. Jack reckons its weight at about 120 pounds as he positioned himself with the gaff. Suddenly the 90-pound breaking strain steel trace that had been frayed against the shark's teeth during the fight parted. It took the shark a few moments to realise his good fortune, but it gradually recovered and swam slowly into the depths, leaving Jack a broken man. He realised that it was only with sheer luck that he had managed to make any progress with this fish, and as any angler knows, your tackle is only as strong as its weakest link. With the 1963 season just beginning, Jack knew he would have to ring the changes with his tackle. Well, while it was frustrating to have come so close to breaking the 100 pound mark, only to lose it at the last moment, at least he learned a great deal from this experience, right up to the point of almost gaffing. One characteristic of a fighting poor beagle, and this is something that catches a lot of boat anglers off guard, is the shark's tendency to bore down deep at the very last moment, snapping the short line. But Jack had the added problem of his line coming into close contact with the barnacle and crusted rocks. He had to increase the length of his trace significantly, effectively making his rod obsolete as a casting instrument. He also learned that if he was going to gain any delaying power over large fish, he was going to have to increase the breaking strain of his main line. This was going to be a real challenge. The Luxor fixed bull reel was already maxed out with the 19-pound breaking strain line and had really gone as far as it was going to go. Large capacity multipliers at the time were really only suitable for both, not shore angling, and the heavy brass spools made any degree of casting completely impossible. Anyway, with the long trace on such a short rod, Jack was going to have to throw rather than cast his bait from now on, making any kind of multiplier useless for the job. Jack did a bit of research into the big game techniques of shore anglers in other parts of the world, and in particular Australia, 
where massive fish were regularly taken from venues very similar to the Rocky Clear Coast. He found the answer to his problem, an Australian classic, the Alvey Sidecast Reel. Basically a large high-capacity centre pin complete with a star drag, but the spool could be rotated at 90 degrees to cast fixed spool style directly through the rod rings. We're really spoiled nowadays with online fishing tackle shopping. With a click of a button you can order any piece of kit you want from any part of the world and have it delivered directly to your door. But in the west of Ireland back in the 1960s it wasn't that simple. And I'm sure Jack had to do a fair bit of inquiring between suppliers and tackle dealers before he eventually got his hand on the reel he was after. An Alvey sidecast with a 5.5 inch diameter spool. This would carry 300 yards of 32 pound braking strain line, plus 60 yards of backing. He also increased the braking strain of his traces from 90 pounds to 250 pounds, and these were made of cable-laid wire. The traces were 14 feet long and made in two parts. The lower half held a 10 hook, and this was swiveled to a further 7 foot of either stout coralline or wire depending on how snaggy the venue was. His bait was the tail half of a fresh mackerel, and this was tied firmly to a hook using white cord. A small float was then tied to the trace at either a 7 foot or 14 foot swivel position. So this basically completed Jack's 1963 outfit. During 1963 Jack realised his 100 pound ambition not once but four times. From the 11th of July to the 28th of August of that year he caught a total of five sharks. From 90 pound to a staggering 138 pounds, an incredible shore angling achievement really. But all this success didn't come without his share of drop runs and unsuccessful hookups. He lost one fish due to the submerged upper trace tangling around the shark's body during the fight and bringing his main line into contact with the rough hide. So to counter this problem he began to attach small pilot floats at different intervals along the length of his upper trace. This kept it afloat and out of harm's way and worked perfectly. He made several observations that he felt were important to any prospective shark angler. Firstly the arrival of the shark definitely coincided with the annual arrival of the mackerel. There was no doubt about that and during settled conditions the shark would push the shoals right up into touching distance of the rocks. Their tendency to attack small feather lures also led him to believe that sprat made up a large part of their diet, and many a fine pollock was stolen on its way to the surface too. He also noticed that these inshore sharks had a tendency to patrol near the surface, often very visibly, so this was where Jack concentrated most of his angling efforts, suspending his baits no deeper than 7 or 14 feet below the float. He found that premature striking almost invariably resulted in a missed fish, because the bait wasn't swallowed immediately. Rather, the sharks had a tendency to hold the bait in its teeth, chewing and shredding it for a short while before finally taking it properly. He would allow them to run with his bait for anything up to 50 yards before setting the hook with a strong sideward sweep in the hope of setting the hook in the corner or scissors of the shark's mouth. This made for a more secure hooking into a larger surface area than the remaining tooth-filled part of the shark's jaw. These fish often went for a further 150 yards against the drag, and that was exactly what Jack wanted. Let them off out to hell, he used to say. Let them do all their fighting out in open water, out of harm's way. He'd often turn these sharks at 250 yards, and then a full-on physical battle would begin that often lasted over half an hour. He would play these sharks out to a virtual standstill before his lads would finally do the gaffing. Movement in the bait definitely added to its attraction. Jack told me once how he caught a shark for each day of a bank holiday weekend, probably an August bank holiday. That's three sharks in three days. While boats fishing not far offshore using standard drift tactics drew an absolute blank. Indeed, Jack often felt that these boats were fishing too far offshore to expect any success with poor beagles. When things became quiet, Jack would experiment with fishing his bait at different depths, and he sometimes added a balloon to his trace when conditions allowed, using the offshore breeze to drift his bait out into deeper water. 
He was always exploring and trying new things. Often he would pull out a bag of Robbie Dobby, and while this certainly went a long way towards attracting mackerel, he felt that it had little effect on the sharks who were more preoccupied with chasing down live fish. No matter who was there before him, he was always given free reign of shark rock. You see, great excitement had built up around his fishing, and it wasn't long before this excitement found its way through the wider angling grapevine. In 1964, Jack upgraded his tackle. He replaced the 8-foot solid fiberglass rod with an auger 12-foot 6-pound test curve hollow fiberglass beach caster. He whipped the gathering ring onto the rod near the butt. This would facilitate the smooth transit of line as it coiled off the large diameter alvey spool. This prevented a whiplash effect and probably gained him a few yards on his cast as well. He also got himself an alvey 725. This was a 6.5-inch diameter side cast. With his ambition now set at taking a 200-pounder, he knew he needed to increase his line capacity. The 725 came with two spools. He loaded one spool with 400 yards of 31-pound breaking strain line, and the other was for the rainy day when a really large fish came into sight. This he loaded with 400 yards of 60-pound breaking strain line. The 12-foot rod brought Jack one major advantage. He could now protect his main line when a shark dived by holding it away from the rock face below him. This gave him greater control, and for this reason he was now able to reduce the length of his trace by a foot or two, and return to casting rather than throwing his bait by hand. This outfit gave him casts up to 75 yards. He reduced the breaking strain of his trace to 150 pounds of 49-strand cable-laid wire. This fine supple material allowed for more natural presentation of his baits. This basically became the kit that he used for the remainder of his shark fishing. Jack always knew that there were other areas along the clear coast that gave access to deep inshore water where shark fishing was a definite possibility. So he extended his range to the North Clear Coast to an area called Ballyreen. This area lies on the edge of the famous Burren, a boulder-strewn landscape composed of limestone. This is an amazing place full of indigenous plants. It's covered in crags and crevices carved into it by millions of years of erosion. The rocky ledges here tower 20 feet above the ocean surface and face northwesterly, overlooking the mouth of Galway Bay and the Aran Islands. There's rough ground below the ledges that hold Ross, Conger and Pollock, but this gives way to sand further out at about 50 yards, where Huss, Ray, Flatfish and even Taupe and Stingray have been taken. A few years ago I spoke to a guy who dived here back in the 70s, and he remembered one particular day when him and his buddy were diving around Ballyreen on a lobster gathering trip. Suddenly they were absolutely buzzed by up to half a dozen poor beagles, these sharks are normally very shy of divers, but these ones were definitely taking a great interest in them. And after a while it became apparent that what was attracting the sharks was the clapping sound the lobsters were making in the mesh bags. The action of the lobsters' tails was sending out a low-frequency shockwave, probably similar to an injured fish. I don't think lobsters make up a part of a poor beagle's diet. They were amazed at the grace and agility of these sharks as they hovered around them. Then just as quickly as they appeared, they were gone again. This area doesn't have the same underwater reefs as the Green Island so it makes fishing a bit easier, and also the height of the fishing platform certainly adds a lot to the distance of your cast. In July 1964, Jack parked his car on the edge of the coast road and made his way across the 200 yards or so of limestone plateau down to the rock ledges. As always, he set up his mackerel fishing gear in order to get himself a few baits. After feathering for a while, he spotted a shark near the surface close to the rock face. As he retrieved his feathers, it was obvious that this shark was in hunting mode, as it followed close behind his feathers, showing a great interest in them. He set up his shark gear and baited with a whole mackerel and cast it out. His bait was quickly taken, and following the battle, Jack gaffed and landed the shark single-handed from a small ledge near the water's surface. 
So we usually plenty of volunteers to do the gaff and for him, usually his sons, Gerard and Noel, or some of his angling companions. But sometimes Jack found himself alone and had to play and land the shark without any help. Indeed, he took several hundred pound plus fish this way. He described it to me once as being similar to hauling a large bag of cement up the gable end of a house. A few days later he caught a hundred and fifteen pounder from the same area and lost four more in the space of a week through missed strikes. To try and counter this he began to split each mackerel neatly and completely remove the backbone. The bait was then tied back onto the hook in the usual way. This brought a definite improvement in the number of successful strikes. Well, just two months before this, Jack had been in contact with another legend, the famous Mr. Crabtree himself, Bernard Venables. Bernard was the editor of Creel magazine at the time and expressed an interest in publishing an article by Jack about his exploits on the clear coast. Jack wrote the article entitled Poor Beagles from the Shore and it was published in the August edition of Creel. Jack was an incredibly bright man and definitely a gifted writer. All of his articles were written beautifully in a really descriptive lyrical style that really captured the essence of shore fishing. I often think it was a great pity that the opportunity never arose for him to actually write a full book about all his angling experiences right from the very beginning. Jack had no idea of the impact that this article was about to make on the angling world. Suddenly there was a huge interest in Jack and his fishing. Requests for further articles by all the major angling publications began to arrive at his home. Even the national newspapers gave him a mention. There was a standing joke between him and Kevin Lanann. Kevin was a long-time friend and angling companion of Jack's. He was one of the most experienced and well-fished anglers in the country. Kevin sometimes submitted articles to magazines, and he often had to wait a long time to hear whether his efforts would be accepted or not. And meanwhile, on the other hand, you had Jack actually being requested to write articles with a guarantee of being published. The two lads used to knock real crack over that. Anglers from all over Europe wrote to Jack requesting advice, and he always replied, and among his mementos were dozens of letters thanking him for all his help. The list of visitors to Jack's home read like a who's who of the angling world at the time, names like Hugh Stoker, Clive Gammon and many more. These well-known angling journalists joined him on many of his fishing trips, and a lot of really enduring friendships were formed during that time. Jack was in his early forties around this time, and he was busy with work and bringing up a young family, but his home had become a real hub of angling activity, and he and his wife still made time for everyone. They really enjoyed meeting all these interesting people. One of the national newspapers described the situation as Jack being pestered by foreign anglers, and Jack didn't like this one bit. He was the gentlest man you could ever meet, but he contacted the editor and expressed in no uncertain terms his displeasure at how the situation had been so misrepresented. Even on the other side of the world in Australia, Jack's fishing didn't go unnoticed, and the Alvey Reel Company saw his use of their reels as an excellent opportunity to publicise and market their product in Europe. Jack even got the opportunity to travel widely to this effect, but he passed on that. By the end of 1964, having fished almost exclusively for shark for three years, Jack had caught a total of 13. After this, although he continued to go after sharks, he began to return to fishing for other species, and he had an article entitled Bass from a Doolin Beach, published in, in Creel of May 1965, a beautiful article that described the excellent fishing that existed there during that time. 1967 proved to be the next exciting chapter in Jack's shark fishing. He was joined by his long-time fishing companion, Kevin Lenan. There was a funny fishing story that Jack told me about a trip to the Green Island. The weather was nice, so they were joined by their wives Rita and Maeve. It was a sort of picnic come fishing trip, so the fishing wasn't going to be taken too seriously. They were float fishing for Pollock using strips of mackerel. Well, apparently Kevin being a hardcore angler was finding it difficult to strike a balance between picnicking and fishing, 
and with Maeve encountering little technical difficulties with her fishing, Kevin had to go to her aid more than once. So when she began calling him again with her rod absolutely bent over into a hoop, he was in no great hurry. This time though it wasn't the barnacle-covered rocks that she'd made contact with, but a monster of a pollock that she succeeded in landing, and it turned out to be a staggering twelve pounds in weight, and an absolute fish of a lifetime for any shore angler. Kevin was a bit gobsmacked. So there you have it. The woman's touch wins the day again. Anyway, Kevin was with Jack during June and July of 1967, and he witnessed him taking two great sharks during that time, both caught at the Green Island. They weighed 140 and 145 pounds. Jack managed to turn both these fish at about 250 yards using 31-pound break-and-strain line. The 145-pounder was a truly magnificent fish, and although Jack was never one for the trophy shot, Kevin must have insisted, and what resulted were some of the most iconic photographs ever taken of Jack with his catch. At this stage he had made one small modification to his tackle. Clive Gammon sent him a packet of hardy steel machine trebles in a 6 size. These were designed with Niall Perch in mind. Jack was obviously happy with their hooking ability because they became a permanent fixture in all his traces from then on. One point was inserted into the back of the bait, usually a whole mackerel. A piece of white core was then used to tie the shank of the hook to the bait, and it was again tied then at the tail, just along the trace, and this made it for a really neat presentation. What did travel, however, was an advert by Elvy featuring a picture of Gerard, Jack's eldest son, beside one of the 1963 sharks, the 130-pounder, from the Green Island. Through this advert that appeared on all continents, the name Jack Shine became known in angling circles worldwide. You would have thought that with so much excitement generated by this time, and with sharks being present in fairly good numbers, the Jack would have been joined in his pursuit by others. The truth is there were a few, although I have no details. I know a few anglers were in touch with him regarding information about trace-making materials. There's no doubt that some great stories came from those days, and there's one in particular that comes to mind that Jack told me. There was a lot of characters about, and one of them was a young lad that often fished at the Green Island in the company of Jack and his lads. They were there one day feathering for Pollock, and an unusual angling opportunity presented itself. A huge basking shark happened to find itself close to the rock they were fishing on. Close enough for this young fellow to have a brainwave. These sharks grow up to 30 feet long. He decided anyway that he was going to put it up to the shines and make his own mark in the world of this big game fishing. So, what did he do? He promptly cast his lower across the back of the great fish and it took hold in its thick hide. Don't do this at home, kids. It's really not to be recommended. Anyway... As the great fish continued on its journey, taking up the slack line, the young lad turned around to Jack with a, with a purposeful grin and said, Watch this shine. I'm going to show you how it's done. The shark simply continued on its world tour, rapidly emptying the little spool, and in the end the line stretched and snapped with an explosion of laughter from everybody, including the lad himself. His mission was doomed from the start, but he did have a story to end all fish's stories to tell his grandchildren about the one that got away. In August 1967... Only a week after landing the 145-pounder, Jack was to have his own big fish story. After already landing two good fish, he had a feeling there might be bigger ones about, so he replaced the spool containing the 31-pound line with the seldom-used one carrying 400 yards of 60-pound line. Kevin Lennan had joined Jack and his sons on this particular day, and he was probably hoping to get some more good photographs. After getting a few mackerel anyway, Jack baited up and began casting and retrieving. This became his favourite and most successful method, he told me once that if a shark appeared and you could intercept it with a moving bait, you were practically guaranteed to take. And this proved to be the case on this particular day. As he watched his bait turning slowly beneath the surface, steadily winding the handle of the six and a half inch reel, 
He suddenly got a glimpse of a shark far bigger than any he had encountered before, and his bait disappeared. He watched the line feathering through his fingers, keeping an eye in the direction it was going, giving the shark plenty of time to take the bait. When he struck, the fish just continued moving steadily in the same direction. With two hundred yards now gone off his spool, and the shark safely out in open water, Jack piled the pressure on in a bit to turn it, but nothing happened. The shark just continued on its course. Jack began to realise that this was different to all the others. By three hundred yards he had tightened the drag on his reel up to its maximum, and still the line continued to stream off. The alarm bells were starting to ring. With only 25 yards of line left, he called Gerard over to help him to hold the spool and prevent it from turning, but they had to yield as the last few kites of line disappeared from the spool, and Jack began to see the knot that he had tied three years before. The rod was no use to him now as the line began to stretch, and all he could do was dig his heels into the rock surface. 60 pounds of pressure would be almost enough to pull an angler off the rocks. It had become a tug of war, but still nothing registered with the fish. The line stretched and stretched as the shark maintained its course for the Iron Islands. Jack braced himself as the line finally burst at the reel with a sound like a ricocheting bullet, and all was still again. Kevin never got his photograph. Jack sat down looking at his rod and empty reel. He was both exhausted and bewildered. Kevin described it as one of the most extraordinary battles he had ever witnessed. He also described it as the first and only time he'd ever seen Jack shine perplexed, and he had known Jack for many years. Only a week before, using 31-pound breaking strain line, he turned a 145-pounder at 250 yards and landed it. What could have stripped and snapped 400 yards of 60-pound breaking strain line without a sign of it ever turning? Afterwards, Jack reckoned it was a shark of about 300 pounds or more, but it could well have been as heavy as 400 pounds. But we'll never know. Jack kept the fish he caught, and while some were sampled for their eating quality, they were kept mostly for the purposes of weighing, and he turned many's ahead on the quiet country roads as he drove to the creamery with the catch tied to the bonnet of his car. There was a scales at the creamery capable of weighing fish well over 100 pounds in weight. While the capture of three or four shark during a season by a shore angler was an incredible achievement, by comparison with the sheer number of these fish being brought in for weighing in the various boat angling centres up and down the country, it barely scratched the surface. A catch of four per beagle shark would represent a reasonable day's fishing for many boats fishing off the clear coast during that time, and many of these fish were kept. Anglers back then fished during a different time, a time when the inshore water seemed to be teeming with life, with fish of all species, and looking beyond Liscanor and Galway Bay, out into the vast Atlantic Ocean, they could be forgiven for believing that it would always remain that way. But of course, this wasn't the case. From the mid-1960s onwards, Jack noticed an alarming decline in the number of fish, and in particular bass, around the popular angling marks of County Clare. There was an increase in activity by close inshore trawlers, and an increase in the laying of lobster pots close to some of the most popular rock fishing marks. Jack campaigned along with others to have a bylaw passed to protect the few areas that were accessible to anglers, areas that had become important in terms of angling tourism. Along with people like Leslie Moncrief and Clive Gammon, he outlined how lobster pots and the associated lines and floats made it impossible to fish some of the rock fishing marks without becoming entangled, and how trawlers who had miles and miles of inaccessible coastline to fish were still running the nets across beaches that had become by now quite famous for the quality of bass that were found there. Well, the powers that be replied, and while they expressed concern that the situation could adversely affect the angling tourist industry, they saw no need for concern regarding the bass, claiming that commercial catches were small and mostly the result of bycatch from boats fishing for other species. This conclusion was based on observations by fishing officers and commercial skippers, and borne out by market inquiries, and they suggested that the lobster pot problem be sorted out between the anglers and the fishermen themselves. 
Well, in the fullness of time, Jack's observations were found to be correct, and out of necessity, legislation was passed to protect the bass. And while some compromise was found between the anglers and the lobster fishermen that still remains today, it's really up to today's anglers to decide ultimately whether enough has been done to protect their interests. The history of angling illustrates sometimes quite starkly how much has been lost. Through the late 1960s, Jack continued to develop his shark fishing, and he began to experiment with the use of artificial lures. And in Angling Magazine of August 1968, he had an article published entitled Jack Shine, Poor Beagle Man, where he explored the style of fishing. But around that time, Jack began to encounter some health problems, and though he continued to fish through the following years from time to time, by the early 1970s he had stopped fishing altogether. But his love for the sport still remained, and through the many friends he met over the years, he was always kept informed about what was going on in the angling world, and he continued to advise and guide newcomers to the clear coast. Visitors, whether they were old friends or new, were greeted with warmth and kindness by Jack and his family. He was amazed, I think, that people were still so interested in his shark fishing, even though it was so many years ago. He never came across as being particularly nostalgic about it all himself. He saw it all as being very much something of the past. He'd sort of been there, done that, and moved on. Jack lived more for the moment, really. But he still enjoyed sharing all his experiences and going through his photographs, pointing out all the different places he fished and the tackle he used, going into the finest details. He was really a very helpful man. The sheer awesomeness of Jack's photo albums would leave even the most seasoned angler feeling like he had nothing worth talking about. But Jack was still interested in hearing about your fishing no matter what it was for, whether it was boat fishing for blue shark or winter fishing for pike. And he inquired about the smallest detail, things like hook sizes or the break and strain of a line, everything. He really loved the banter that surrounded fishing. My own season never felt quite complete without a visit or a phone call to Jack and Rita. Jack was always eager to hear how your fishing was going on, and he'd give you all the latest news of what was happening on the clear coast, places that were fishing well, the sort of fish that were being caught. He never lost touch with all that, and he could tell you at any hour of the day what state the tide was at. He always kept that connection with the sea. There's been various reports of the number of sharks that Jack caught during the decade he fished for them, with numbers of a hundred shark being quoted up to 350 pounds in weight, but Jack told me he caught somewhere in the region of 40 fish with a 145-pounder being the largest he landed. He was definitely one of the most creative, unconventional and innovative anglers of all time, who created an entire new branch of sport fishing, and the fame he brought to the shore marks of County Clare contributed hugely to his community. I have to say it was really an honour to have known him. Jack passed away peacefully in the winter of 1998, at the age of 75. As an extraordinary angler, and a kind and gentle soft-spoken man, he will always be remembered. There's no doubt about it, just like everywhere else, the Clare Coast saw a dramatic decline in poor beagle numbers during the past few decades due to commercial fishing. As an angling proposition, they're rarely fished for by boat anglers now, most opting for the more reliable blue shark fishing further offshore where incidental encounters with poor beagles have become quite rare. So with fewer boats fishing the traditional poor beagle grounds, it's difficult to gauge what sort of numbers are still there. The outfish shows up from time to time, but right through the 80s and 90s, Jack noticed that there were no reports of sightings or feather snatching at the Green Island area anyway, apart from one. Jack's son was fishing there one day in the mid-90s and had his feathers taken by something, but Jack added that it could have been a taupe. But who knows? At Ballyreen in the late 80s in Angra had a large pollock taken by something, the bit had clean through just behind the head. Recently, though, there's been reports on the various angling forums of poor beagle sightings around the Green Island area. 
There is cause for optimism, as recently legislation was introduced to protect the power beagle in EU waters, and also the ban on drift net fishing is bound to have a positive effect. The power beagle recovery will be a slow one, but at least things are moving in the right direction, and as the rock fishing mares of County Clare are still very popular with anglers, who knows, maybe in the future the power beagle may once again become a feature, either as an angling proposition or as a tackle-smashing mystery. Either way, it would be nice just to know they're still there.